Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bible together to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text this Easter Sunday morning, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We never want to lose sight of the focus that our message is one that the world thinks is foolish. So the title of the message today is The Message of the Cross. Last Sunday, we looked at what Peter had to say about the cross and why we still need the cross. We saw that because of the seriousness of sin, that God's viewpoint on sin hasn't changed at all in 2,000 years, really since eternity. He hates sin all the time and he must punish sin. And the power of sin, sin is more than something we occasionally do. It is the dominion in which we live before we're born again. We are under the authority and the power of sin before Jesus sets, his, sets us free. And then there's the universality of sin. Our modern technologically advanced world is no different than that of our great, great, great grandparents. We still need a savior. And then two Sundays ago, we looked at the fact that the cross was a divine necessity. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die and rise again. This was God's eternal redemptive plan before the foundation of the earth. But this morning, I want us to look at the message of the cross. Probably like no other time on the calendar, the collective focus of the nation, really the world, at least superficially, is upon the cross of Christ. Now that Christmas, the focus is on the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. Two evenings ago on Good Friday in this room, uh, we worshiped and the mood was somber as we reflected on the suffering and death of Jesus, and rightly so. But Easter is happy. It's a celebration of renewal and resurrection. But when I speak of the message of the cross, I'm not talking about a feeling or an emotion. I'm doing so in the way that the Apostle Paul does in our text today here in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross means all the component parts of God's eternal plan of redemption, including his virgin birth, his sinless life, his literal substitutionary death, his literal bodily resurrection. That is the core content of the gospel. And what distinguishes the gospel message from all other isms and human philosophies in the world and throughout history. So let's read our text now and discover the answer to the life's long held question. How can a man be made right with a holy God? Verse 18, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. May the Lord 
add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Paul says the word of the cross, the Greek word is logos. The logos of the cross means its essential message, its story, its core meaning. Now, last Sunday, we looked at various views that Christians have had through the centuries of the cross and of atonement. Some have said that Christ was just setting a good example for the rest of us to follow. Some saying it's like a conquering general. He's proclaiming victory over death and the grave. And some like our church teach that the core message of the cross is that of substitutionary atonement. And we saw there's elements of truth in all of those various views. But what Paul is doing, he's holding up a study in contrast between two groups of people and their view of the cross. Two families on earth, two conditions, lost or saved, two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God's dear son, two masters, Christ or sin. And he holds up these two views and he uses a unique term. He says, the world is divided between two groups of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now that terminology is likely strange to your ears, even if you grew up going to church, because we are accustomed to speaking of our spiritual condition in one of two tenses, either the present or the past. We, we say in the present that we are saved or that we are lost. Or we say in the past we were saved at a point in time or we were lost before we were born again. But it's just as correct to use this unusual tense, are being saved or are perishing. You see, in the past, at a moment in time, if we're saved, God did strike the gavel and say that one is forgiven. And we are justified from that point on from our perspective. And from that point, we are being saved through progressive sanctification as God keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. But we know there is a heaven and this isn't it, right? So ultimately, we will be saved from the presence of sin when we receive our glorified bodies and spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. All of these are true statements. So what unbelievers think about the cross is what Paul has in mind today. Last week, we looked at what believers think about the cross. Today, we look at what unbelievers think and believe about the cross. Now, among those who reject Christ, Paul says, those are they that are perishing. He has two subgroups under that group. One is Jewish and one Greek. And really, in Paul's mind, that represented every human on planet Earth. You were either Jewish or you're a Gentile or Greek. Those are interchangeable terms. And he says to the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block primarily. Now, we don't think of stumbling blocks anymore. We might say uh, it's uh, one of those concrete things that makes you slow down in front of the grocery store, right? Because we don't walk where we go, but they walked and, and there would be a root that would be above the surface and they would catch their sandaled toe on that and trip themselves. So Paul is saying the cross and its simple message of salvation by grace through faith trips a lot of people up along their path of life. Because it seems too simplistic, seems too e easy. There has to be something more complicated than that. And then he says another group of people reject the cross because to them it is utterly foolish that God would leave the glories of heaven and condescend and become like us, live in a body where he would have to suffer all the indignities that humans go through on a daily basis. And so they just dismiss the simple gospel out of hand. It can't be that, they think. Now you remember that the city of Corinth was culturally Greek. That is, they spoke the Greek language and they were very proud of it. The, the Greek language was music to their ears and any other language was, that was not Greek, they called barbaric. 
just sound like bar, bar, bar to them. Now, all of us have cultural pride. Brother Dan spoke of the Vietnamese language and his pride in it. And probably all of us think that our particular language is the most beautiful in the world. But the Greeks had an unusual cultural pride in themselves. I don't know what we could compare it to. It's almost Texan in their pride <laughs> for their culture. Now, I'm from Mississippi. Like most of you, I'm not from Texas, but we got here as fast as we could. And I remember sitting on the front row here over 20 years ago. One of the first opportunities I had to preach when I was an intern here, uh, one of the true Texans in our church leaned forward right as I was about to get up to speak, and he said, Sanders, are you going to speak in Mississippian or English tonight? <laughs> and I suppose it was a mixture of both. Uh, but the point is we are prideful about our own culture and our own language. Paul knew that. And so he's looking at the Greek culture with which they had so much pride, and he knew the thing they were most prideful about was philosophy. The Greeks liked nothing better than sit around the water cooler and debate philosophy. Now, philosophy is the study or the pursuit of wisdom. That is the answer to life's most fundamental questions. What's the meaning of life? How do we get here? Well, what's required of us in this life? What's the most important thing in this life that we ought to be doing? And they would debate it ad infinitum, ad nauseum. And there were dozens, perhaps even hundreds of philosophical schools and positions in Corinth so that the population found itself divided into all of these factions and there was constant friction wherever you went. Well, you know that these people that Paul addresses here as the Corinthian church came out of that system. And unfortunately, it seems in the context of 1 and 2 Corinthians that they imported that factionalism into the church. And so before long, they began to debate among themselves around the water cooler in the fellowship hall, not who was the greatest philosopher, but who was the greatest preacher. And so some says, well, I'm of Paul, and some say I'm of Apollos, and some say I'm of Cephas, Peter. And Paul heard about this factionalism arising in the church, and it broke his heart. He said, did we die for any of you? You see, Christianity is, is about Jesus and not about preachers or even apostles. There is one core message of Christianity, and that is the message of the cross. And it's simple, as we saw today, even a six-year-old child can understand it. And further, Paul aims to show here in this text the superiority of this simple gospel message over every other complicated philosophical ism in the world. But before we get to the Gentiles or the Greeks, let's look at another group, the Jews. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. This stumbling block that he mentions here had to do with their religious pride. And we must admit, as Paul was Jewish himself, and he loved his Jewish brethren, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved, that they got a lot of things right as it related to the great fundamental questions of life. They knew how we got here. They had Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. They knew that God is one, Deuteronomy 6, behold, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And they knew that he was holy. They had the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and they knew what he believed and thought about sin. They knew that they were sinful and he was holy. But they got something fundamentally wrong about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law. Many of them had come to believe that they were saved by being Jewish or they were saved by keeping the law. 
Paul was in that group for many years until one day he was struck blind on the road to Damascus as he was on his way to persecute Christians. But in one sense, he had never seen more clearly because the Lord Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, showed Paul his own sinfulness and showed him that he could never hope to reach God's standard of holiness and that his only hope was to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, Paul preached a simple message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. See, he knew that the law was not designed to save, neither could it save. The law was simply a mirror that is held up to humanity to show us our need of a Savior. So the message that a Messiah would come to suffer and die on a cross was antithetical to what most of Paul's Jewish friends understood about the interpretation of the Old Testament, and particularly the Messianic prophecies. You see, they were under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. And so they believed their greatest need of salvation was physical. They were looking forward to a Savior who would raise an army and overthrow the Romans and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem and they would be an independent and autonomous nation again. But Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost, not to raise an army. And so that became a stumbling block to Paul's Jewish peers. They tripped over it. They couldn't get their mind around it. It's not the Messiah they wanted. In fact, Jesus' inner circle of disciples seemed to trip over this very thing. As we said in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said plainly up in Caesarea Philippi to his inner circle of disciples, I must suffer many things. I must die. And Peter took Jesus aside and said, not so, Lord. We've got a better idea for you. That's not the Messiah we're looking for. And Jesus said, get you behind me, Satan. They wanted a sign, Paul said, namely the overthrowing of their enemies. And when Jesus declared that he came not to destroy but to save, many of them were disappointed and walked away. Many of them from that point on dismissed his messianic claims and the gospel altogether. But Paul here is primarily addressing not Jewish people, but those who self-identify with the Greek culture. So he says the message of the cross to Greeks is foolishness. Well, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Let's look at that word now, foolishness. That Greek word translated in our English Bibles as foolishness has a root in the Greek. Are you ready for this? Moron. That's right. It's where we get the word. Someone who is illogical and believes things that are baseless. That's what most Greek people, when they heard the simple gospel, said about it. It is moronic. For the most part, the educated Greeks looked at their philosophies and compared it to the simple bloody cross, God taking on human flesh and dying in the place of sinners as laughable. They dismiss it out of hand and worthless except for one thing. The only worthy thing they found about the gospel and the cross was as a target for comedic insults. Does that sound sort of familiar? And that's sort of like our culture today. When it speaks of Christ, it's a curse word. When it speaks of the cross and the church, it's fodder for late night comedy. But friends, here is a rule of thumb that you might write down for every epic of history. See, our modern world and culture believes that it's unique to any that has ever gone before it. We're wiser, we're more sophisticated, we're more technologically astute. We have outgrown our need for the cross, they believe. 
But here's a rule of thumb about every culture, including the one Paul was writing to. Man, in every epoch of history, seeks to elevate his own wisdom higher than it should and bring God's wisdom down lower than it should. This has been going on since the Tower of Babel. Man's been trying to reach God and bring God down to him. And so you can attach any prefix to ism in the world and what you have is a higher view of man than the Bible teaches and a lower view of God than the Bible teaches. We heard this morning of several who came out of Buddhism. But you could attach any word to ism and really it comes to the same net result. Now does that mean that Christians should be anti-intellectual or anti-education? We have been accused of that. That seems to ignore about 2,000 years of history in which Christians, wherever they've gone as missionaries, have raised the literacy rate wherever they've gone. And why is that? Because we want people to read so they can read the Bible and know what God says about their life. We're not anti-intellectual. We shouldn't be. We're not anti-education. What it does mean is that the Bible, hear this, it means that the Bible and the gospel stands in judgment over man and his philosophies and not vice versa. And so what our culture says is if the Bible speaks of creation and our culture speaks of evolution, we laugh down what the Bible says and we believe what evolution says. The Bible says that it stands in judgment. It is the standard, not man's wisdom. And so he says in verse 19, quoting Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So even though for thousands of years, humans have tried to think their way to heaven. They've had dozens and even hundreds of isms. They all come to the same conclusion. Here it is. Even though they never come to any real knowledge of God or meaning in their lives, they still declare themselves wise. Paul saw this cycle that happens in human culture and is happening in our own Western culture today. And he says this in Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. So here are the two words Paul keeps contrasting in this passage, wisdom and foolishness. And that is exactly what is happening in our culture at this very moment. This is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. Read a newspaper. And so what we have is extremely intelligent people with high IQs who are well-educated who can't define what it means to be a man or a woman. In fact, we had an appointee to the highest court in the land recently who testified before Congress under oath that because she was not a trained biologist, she was unqualified to say who's a man and who's a woman. Friends, this is foolishness of what is called human wisdom. Now, on the other hand, you take the simple message of the cross that Jesus died for sinners and you put that in front of people who have experienced it, who he's granted faith and repentance to, they have a very different point of view. The gospel to those people is not a stumbling block. 
And it's certainly not foolish. In fact, the scripture says here, it is the power of God unto salvation. And that is our third point, power. The message of the cross, the content of the gospel to believers is not foolish. Rather, it is the ultimate display of power and the ultimate display of wisdom. That's why Paul says in verse 23, but in contrast, in other words, we Christians preach Christ crucified. Yes, it's a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, who are the called? That's the elect. Those that from the foundation of the earth, God has set his foreknowing love upon and predestined them to walk in holiness. And he justified them in time and space. And he called them out of spiritual death, even as Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. Come forth. And they came forth. And those are the ones that one day he's going to bring with him to glory. That's us, folks. And he says to us, the simple gospel is the most powerful agency in the world. It is potent. Did you know the Greek word for power is dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite? It is explosive power. The gospel is powerful enough, Paul is saying, to do what no human wisdom could do in the past or can ever do in the future. That is to save a lost soul. To answer life's greatest question, how can I, a sinner, be made right with a holy God. And friend, come close and hear this. You will never find that answer through human wisdom. No one ever has. So what both Jews and Gentiles alike view as weak, the simple message of the cross, is in reality powerful enough to save both of those groups. That's what you had in the early church. You had Jews and Gentiles who hated one another being united by common confession in Christ. So he says in verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's our fourth point, the wisdom of God. We talk about wisdom here as much as anything. If you stop me in the hall, if you call me during the week, say, Pastor, how can I pray for you? I'm guaranteed to give you the same answer. Pray for my wisdom. James 1.5, we quote it all the time here. If anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely. Verse 25 here says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, Paul is using a play on words here. He's not saying God is foolish or the message is foolish. He's saying that's how the world views us. The Greeks view the gospel message as foolish. And so Paul says, okay, I'll grant you it's foolish, but it's foolish enough to save you. The foolishness of God from man's perspective. And, and how does he bring this about? He says, God has chosen through the foolishness of the message preached to save sinners. Now, he's not advocating here, as I often tell you, foolish preaching. I hear enough of that on the radio and TV, don't you? He's saying and advocating that we preach this simple message that has been preached for 2,000 years that the world thinks is comedy, that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, died for sinners like us. Paul is declaring, in short, the supremacy of the simple gospel to everything else in the world. And friends, I'm here to say amen to Brother Paul, aren't you? There's nothing in the world that we could search for and find that has the same power as the cross. And so there's two groups of people that Paul is addressing. 
those who are being saved, those who are perishing. As I look out over this vast audience today, that's the only two possibilities of people in this room. There are those who are being saved or those who are still in their sins. You're, you're perishing. So I want to address both of you directly. First of all, I want to direct my first quotes to my first words to the Christians here. You've been born again. Don't ever forget when you get up in the morning, get in your car to go to work. Some of you are the only Christian in your place of business that you as a born-again believer have the answer to life's hardest questions. And so at 10 o'clock when your friends gather in the break room for coffee and they're contemplating the meaning of life and scratching their head, don't be afraid to speak a good word for Jesus. In fact, Paul said it this way, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said it this way, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. Christian, don't hide your light. And that's what the gospel is. It's a light that the world needs to expose its sin. Don't hide it under a basket. Put it on a lampstand for all to see. Declare the simple gospel wherever you go with full-throated confidence. Does that mean everybody's going to embrace you and put you up on their shoulders as a conquering hero. No, they're going to laugh at you. <laughs> they're going to revile you. You'll probably miss a promotion or two at work. And they're going to thank you a fool. But Jesus says the servant's not greater than his master. Isn't that how they treated him ultimately? And worse, stripped his body, beat him with whips, plucked his beard, put a crown of thorns on his head, and put a sign mocking him that says, King of the Jews. He said that's the path we'd have to follow. If any man wants to follow after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't change the fact that we have the truth. Jesus said of himself that he is the truth. Thy word is truth. And to a lost person, I would say this. You came in here today... For whatever reason, I don't assume that people came in here today because they were in love with Jesus. Uh, maybe some of you did. People come to church for all kinds of reasons. But you find yourself here today. You find yourself one more time confronted with the truth claims of Christ. You've heard his assessment that without him you are lost and helpless and hopeless. I call upon you, lost person, to despair of finding your own way to God. You will not. None of your ancestors ever did, and no one in the future will ever think their way to God. The only way to God and the only way to heaven is to come to him the way that he has prepared in his sovereignty, and that way is through humble submission. To recognize his assessment of you as a sinner is correct. That you are a rebel, and you are a sinner, and you are separated from him forever, and you have no hope of living eternally with a holy God except if he grants you forgiveness and grace. But that is the wonderful good news. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not a person in this room or any of the overflow rooms or watching today by internet that if you will not repent of sins and come before the Lord on his terms, which are very simple, empty hands, Outturned pockets. You can't come to him to negotiate. You can't come to him to barter. You can't come to him to declare 
your good deeds or your intent to do better in the future. All of those come to a sum total of zero. Paul says those people won't make it. If you come to him in humility and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I failed. I continue to fail. I need a Savior. Will you forgive me? Will you accept me as one of your own? His sacred pledge and promise is that he'll hear your prayer, forgive your sins, and give you a home in heaven. See, the people you sit around every week in church are not super saints. What we are are sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And there's room for one more, I promise you. So if you'll come today, the Lord will hear your prayer and he'll save you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice this Easter Sunday morning in the gospel. It is simple. It's amazing. And it's so simple, amazing, many people reject it out of hand as laughable and foolish and impossible. Others, Lord, who are seeking to make a way to you themselves stumble over it because they think they can get to heaven on their own. They can't. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us today and convict of sin and your judgment to come and your righteousness. Father, I pray you'd add souls to your kingdom today. Father, I pray for Christians here today who get real quiet and a subject of religion comes up. Father, they don't want to be ostracized. They, they don't want to lose a promotion. Father, I pray for them. Will you give them courage to boldly speak the gospel, knowing it is the only way for men and women to go to heaven. Father, help us to be evangelistic at our place of business and on the ball field and at school this week. Father, we pray that through our lives that we would seek nothing else and to bring glory to Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.